Hello everybody, welcome back to the Brokenness to Faith podcast. My name is Noah and I will be your host for today's episode. Um, unfortunately, Marky couldn't uh, join me for this one, so you're stuck with me for this this time around. Um, if you have a Bible that you're you're reading along with me here, you can go ahead and open up to Second Chronicles. We're going to be looking at the life of Solomon today, King Solomon. Now, a while back, um, back when I was leading a young adults group, I I did a study on the good kings of Judah. The, the kings that were remarked in the Bible as being good kings um, for one reason or another. But before there was Judah, and you know, you had the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, there was just the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel only had three kings, David, Solomon, and Solomon's son, whose name I am blanking on and can't remember. Um, and then after that third king, the kingdom split into two. So Solomon isn't regarded as one of the good kings of Judah, but for all intents and purposes, he was a good king, much like David, his father, before him. He was a good king. And what I want to do today is briefly look at the life of Solomon to see what did he do that made him such a good king that we can mimic in our lives. But just as importantly... Where did Solomon go wrong? Because much like the good kings of Judah, Solomon had a what I call a fatal flaw, something that he did wrong that stained his his legacy as king. He's still a good king, and there's still good to learn from him, but he did something wrong. He had a fatal flaw, and I believe that we can look at Solomon's life today and learn the good and the bad of what he did and apply it to our lives today. And so, like I said, we will be in Second Chronicles, uh, the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles. So we start by looking at how did Solomon start his reign as king? Well, we know, if, if you're familiar with this story, one of the first things that happens to him is God comes to him in a vision and says, hey, I will give you one thing that you want. Ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And in, in Verse 10 of chapter 1, Solomon says, Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead these people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? So we see Solomon asks for wisdom. And most people, even non-believers, know that Solomon was a wise man when they hear that name. And this is where we see this happen. God comes to him and says, I'll give you one thing you want. And Solomon says, Give me wisdom. And that's such a, a, a powerful, powerful way to start any ministry or really anything we do in our lives. The first thing should always be to seek wisdom from God. And I love why Solomon does this. He says, who could lead this great people of yours? Right? Solomon understood the gravity of being chosen to lead God's people. Right? This was no small task. Not only was he supposed to be king, which is hard enough, but king of God's chosen people. I mean, that it, it, it's like it's hard enough to run a business, but to be the leader of a church, it's like now you not only have to run the business of a church, but now you have to be the anointed leader of God's chosen people. And that's just so much pressure. And 
Solomon is able to look at that and say, this is not something to be taken lightly. This job given to me is not something to just do whatever with and hope it works out. No, like I need to look for wisdom first and foremost. And, and and this is true today of whatever endeavors you are after, whether it's a ministry or just your average everyday career, we have been given great responsibility by God and great callings in our lives. And we need to be sure that we not only, you know, understand and respect the gravity of what God has given us, but that we first and foremost, first and foremost, seek wisdom. I mean, you read Proverbs, and, and, and the book is just filled with, with words of wisdom and the importance of wisdom and seeking wisdom. And, and, and we'll, we'll, I'll talk a little bit more about praying for wisdom, but I mean, that's a good start if ever there was one. <laughs> if, if you want to look for what a good start is, a good Christian start to anything is, it's how Solomon started his reign, seeking wisdom first and foremost from God. Secondly, we see Solomon uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, it, it comes time for him to build the temple. And he says, The temple I'm going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. And, and, and again, we see this extreme reverence and respect for God. He says, The temple I'm going to build is going to be the greatest building ever because God is so great that he deserves nothing but the best. And again, this is true for us even today, right? We might not be kings and queens, but we can still give the best of the best for God because like Solomon says, he's greater than all other gods. He's greater than any money or material things or any pursuit or passions in life. God is greater than all of those things. So he deserves the greatest temples we can build, the greatest you know, offerings we can give, not physically, right? God doesn't need cathedrals per se, but with our lives, we should be giving the best. We should be giving the first fruits of everything we have because God is so, so much greater than anything else. Why give him the least, right? Even if you have nothing to give, you know, there's the story in the New Testament where Jesus is at the temple with his disciples and the poor widow comes and gives just a couple of coins in comparison to the rich men who were given tons and tons of money. And Jesus points out this widow and says, she is blessed in her giving because she gave out of her lack rather than her abundance, right? Even though she was only given a couple coins, it was from a place of lack, which meant that she was giving her best. She was giving her everything for God, even if it's just a couple coins. And Solomon said, look, I can build this, pheno- this, this fantastic, phenomenal temple, but even if I'm only going to build a tiny shack, I'm going to give my best for God, and that's what matters. Not the temple. The temple wasn't what God cared about. It was the, the reverence behind why that temple was built in the first place. And this is something that we need to grasp onto today is this reverence for God and this fear of God that says, I am going to build the greatest thing I can because God deserves nothing but the best that we can give. And then thirdly, uh, later on in chapter 7, we see God give uh, Solomon a phenomenal promise and a very harsh warning. And I believe both of these, this promise and this warning apply to us today. And, and, and so I want to read in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 17 through 22. 
As for you, if you walk before me faithfully, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said, You shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. The temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. So first we see a phenomenal promise where God says, Look, if you follow my decrees and my laws and and you do as I command and you walk faithfully before me, then I will establish your throne. And again, today we're not kings and queens, but we have a calling. We have a ministry. We have things and, and, and desires that we want to achieve, right? And for us, that is our throne, if you will, right? Our throne is our calling. Our throne is our ministry. Our throne is our family, our our pursuits, our dreams, whatever it is, that is, in a sense, our throne. That is our life's calling. And God says, if, if, if you walk faithfully and you do as I command, then I will establish your calling. I will establish your desires. I will establish what you want. And I'm not saying this as a, a, a prosperity preaching type of way, like you'll be rich and, and you know everything you want will be given to you. But there are certain things that God wants to bless us with. And not just blessings of prosperity, but to bless our callings and our ministries, right? Because that is, in its own sense, a blessing that we can grab onto and, and, and relish in, right? But this is followed by a dire warning. And, you know, God says, hey, but if you turn away and you forsake and you you don't follow my decrees, you don't walk faithfully, then I'm going to... I'm going to take Israel from you. I'm going to take Israel from this land. And, you know, he says, I'm going to destroy the temple. And spoiler alert, the temple does get destroyed. And it is, to this day, still a pile of rubble. Uh, Which means that Solomon did, in fact, forsake God. And he did forsake the commands. um, Because the temple is destroyed. Israel was uprooted. It was taken away. The, The kingdom was split right? Nothing good follows after Solomon's reign. And this is what we're going to look at is what went wrong, right? Now, real quick, before I I, I get to where things went wrong, I want to briefly summarize the strength of Solomon. And these are things that we should, as modern day Christians, look at as strengths to emulate ourselves. First and foremost was his prayers for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Right? It's as simple as that. If you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give you the wisdom and the discernment that you need. And this is one of Solomon's greatest strengths. It wasn't that he was wise, 
right? It wasn't that he was called the wisest man to ever live. It was that he sought that wisdom to begin with, right? Solomon could have asked for anything when God came to him, but he said, no, I want wisdom to lead your people. And that is what matters for us today. It's not the blessings we can get. It's not what can I get from this. It's how can I become wiser? How can I become a a better discerner of the truth? How can I, you know, use this wisdom to better reach people and better facilitate my ministry on this earth, right? That's all things wisdom will help us with. Secondly, one of Solomon's greatest strengths was his lavish and passionate worship. Now, when I say lavish, I don't just mean it was physically lavish because it was, but it was spiritually lavish. And this is what I really want to hone in is that our worship is not about how much we give or how fancy our our building is, right? You don't have to have gold ornate altars in order to have proper worship. It's about our hearts. How lavish is our worship to God in our hearts, right? How passionate are we, you know, spiritually when it comes to worshiping God? And that's what matters. And I believe Though Solomon might have expressed it physically in some ways, he had that real earnest heart to worship. And he he recognized the greatness of God and said, you know, building this magnificent temple barely scratches the surface of what I can give and should be giving back to God. And this is something that we need to capture and do today in our lives. And thirdly, Solomon's greatest strengths he had a gift for leadership, a gift for administration. Now, some of us today, most of us listening, we're not leaders, right? We're not in a position of leadership, and that's okay, right? Not everybody can be a leader. Some of us have to be followers. But there are still points where we can lead or administrate. Uh, One example that immediately pops to mind is our own lives, right? We are the leaders of our own lives, and you are in control of your life. And if we fail to properly administrate our own lives and lead our own lives, then everything else around us will start to crumble, and the people around us will be be worse off for it, right? Maybe you're a leader in your household, right? That's an area where you can have administration and leadership, where you have to be able to say, okay, what is the right things to do? Um, later on in verses in chapter eight and nine of Second Chronicles, we see Solomon as a leader, and we see him making discernments, and we see him, you know, being this this phenomenal leader. And part of that is because of his wisdom and his reverence for God that allows him to be such a great leader. But it's important that we are seeking to be the best leaders we can of our lives, of our families, and our households, or really anywhere you find yourself in a position of leadership, right? Because it's important. Because if if we cannot lead ourselves or our families or our ministries, then the people under us will suffer. We will suffer as a result. And and again, this all ties back into wisdom and and seeking that wisdom first and foremost. And so we see, it's, it's very clear to me that Solomon was a good king, right? Solomon was on the ball. He he was doing fantastic, but he had a flaw. And it, it's incredibly unfortunate to see such a great character of the Bible 
suffer a flaw, but he is human. At the end of the day, Solomon was still human, and he still dealt with the same problems we do, which is why I think it's possible to learn from this, because Solomon was human, and so are we. And if Solomon can fall in these pitfalls, then we can too. And if we can look at the pitfalls that he suffered, then perhaps we can learn to avoid them ourselves and, and avoid them in our lives. So what was Solomon's flaw? Well, to put it quite simply, Solomon was a, was a womanizer. He, was, he became lustful in his later years. Um, and, and, and specifically, he struggled with sexual sin, but lust can mean really anything that is an unholy desire for something, right? Anytime we desire something of the flesh or you know, whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's power, that's lust. And, and Solomon's was more specific to sexual immorality, but it can, be, it can be experienced in any number of ways. So what I say moving forward might be specific to Solomon's case, but it can be applied to any form of lust. And I say this to say that we are not above any sin or any temptation, right? Even Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, no one before him, no one after him will ever be as wise, still fell for the sin of lust. He still fell for his fleshly desires. So what do I mean when I say he was a womanizer? Well, Solomon had, and, and I still, after even, even after writing this, my notes still can't believe this. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's over a thousand, roughly a thousand women that he had some form of relationship with. I mean, that's crazy. I, I mean, <laughs> most of us listening can't even handle one wife or one husband, let alone a thousand. I mean, that's crazy. But it, it, it's, it's wrong. It, it's not it's not right. I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse, verses 14 through 17. When you enter the land, the Lord will, your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What, what is Deuteronomy saying? This is before Israel had David as a king, right? This was before the kings of Israel. And God says to them, I'll give you a king, but make sure he does this. Make sure he's not a foreigner. Make sure he's this, this, and that. And make sure he doesn't take many wives. And what does Solomon do just a couple of years later or a couple of generations later? He takes on a thousand wives, <laughs> 700 wives and 300 concubines, Right. I mean, that's blatant disobedience. And so what I want to do is look at some of the possibilities as to how this might have happened. And then, or, or some of the reasons specifically why he might have fallen for, for sexual immorality. And then I'll look at some ways to combat that. Um, so first possibility, and these again are all just speculations. There's no real 
answer given in scripture for this. So these are just my ideas as to what might have happened. Number one, perhaps his parents are to blame. Now we know that Psalms, Solomon's father was David, right? But who was his mother? Some of you maybe know this. Some of you maybe don't know this. Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, right? I mean, we were familiar with the story. David is out on his roof and he sees this woman bathing and he calls that woman over. He sends some people over and, and they bring the woman to him and he has uh, he sleeps with the woman. She gets pregnant and then he ends up killing this woman's husband uh, in order to cover it up so that he can marry her and make it a legitimate marriage and a legitimate child. And this woman was Bathsheba. And so it's not a stretch to say that, well, given this drama that was unfolding, it's entirely plausible that Solomon's upbringing was negatively impacted by this relationship, right? To have a parent who, you know, your your parents met in such a peculiar circumstance and, you know, a man was murdered and, and the relationship was behind closed doors and, and all these different things had to have had an impact on Solomon's upbringing, right? And so it's not a stretch to say that perhaps his relationship with women was in some way inspired by his father's relationship with women. And and here's the, the thing. I don't discredit the fact that other people can have negative impacts on our lives, right? You might have had bad parents that didn't raise you well, or uh, friends or other family members that treated you poorly, right? I don't deny or, or downplay the significance that other people can have in our lives. But here's the, my point. We are the only ones responsible for our own lives. We cannot blame somebody else for how our lives have turned out. Again, I, I don't downplay what other people have done to us and the effect that they can have on our lives. But we are responsible for where we end up. And more importantly, with God on our side, these things don't matter. It doesn't matter what other people do to you when God is on your side. It only matters what Jesus did for us and will continue to do for us, right? It, we, we, we can't continue to blame other people or hold grudges against other people when we're Christians at the same time. The, the, the two just don't blend together. So yes, perhaps his parents had something to do with this, but Solomon in his wisdom <clears throat> in his wisdom should have been able to look at this and say, "Okay, I had bad parents, but they are not responsible for who I am as a person today." So I do not believe that this was the sole reason for why Solomon ended up in the situation that he was in. Secondly, perhaps it was out of a uh, foreign policy, right? In this day and age in this period of time you would solidify alliances between two nations with a marriage right that marriage signified the bond between two different nations and so it's possible that a lot of these marriages came out of an alliance right solomon wanted to form ties with a certain nation and that nation had an unmarried woman within their court and he would marry her and solidify that relationship. And that is, in a worldly sense, perfectly legitimate. 
but spiritually you could look at this as a form of of compromise or a form of deal making with the world and i think as christians it's easy for us to quote unquote marry with the world right we we want to have certain friends or certain things in our lives and so we make this marriage with them to form an alliance with them right we we want these things in our lives so we say i'll give you something of mine i'll give you a little piece of me or a little bit of my time whatever it might be in exchange for what you have to offer that's really our entire relationship with the world i give you a little bit of me you give me what you have and we go on living happy that way but it doesn't end well, and you know Jesus says, "If you live in the world, then you're an enemy of me. You can't have it both ways." So we might think we're living both ways, but you're not. And Solomon probably at times thought he was a husband to all of these women, but he's not. He's married to a thousand women and no one at the same time. <laughs> You know, because he, he, you can't live in both worlds. You can't live in God and out of him at the same time. And you can't be married to multiple people at the same time and still have it be legitimate. Thirdly, third reason that this might have happened is boredom. Simple boredom. You know, I, I'm a strong believer in the fact that a lot of sin comes from a place of boredom, Right? It's easy when your mind is is bored, when you have nothing to do, nothing going on, to let your mind wander or to go to that site that we shouldn't go to or watch that show that we shouldn't watch or hang out with certain friends that we shouldn't hang out with. Whatever it might be, it's it's easy for sin to come in when we're bored because the unfortunate fact is that sin is fun. <laughs> I mean, if sin wasn't fun, if sin wasn't satisfying, we wouldn't do it. And so when you're bored, you're looking for something fun to do. I mean, that's the the whole point. And so it, it's very easy when we're bored to fall into sin. And it's possible that Solomon, in his lavish lifestyle as king, found himself very bored at times. And said, I'll go and, and get myself another wife or another concubine. You know, I'll have fun with her for a month or two and then I'll go find somebody else. And it's possible that his boredom perpetuated this lifestyle. And it's entirely plausible in our lives that boredom is at the root of a lot of the sin that we commit. And, and in a minute I'll talk about how to combat this. And then the last possibility that is very, very real today is perhaps Solomon was addicted. You know, there's, like I said, this is inference. There's no scriptural evidence for it, but perhaps he was addicted to to women or addicted to sex or addicted to the rush of a new, a new partner. And I think today we underestimate the power of addiction when it comes to sin. I mean, pornography is addictive. Alcohol is addictive. Drugs are addictive. Even something like attention or... or some of these other things can be addictive. And we need to be on guard that if you're struggling with something, with a sin constantly, maybe it's time to sit back and say, hey, am I addicted to this? And and if you know somebody who is struggling with sin, 
you know, approach it and say, hey, maybe this person is struggling with some spiritual, mental, physical addiction that isn't going to be a simple, you know, easy fix, right? Obviously, God can break any addiction with a snap of his fingers, but that's not always what happens. And so sometimes we need to approach sin from the mindset of, okay, what if this is an addiction? What if this is something stronger than just the typical sinful nature that we experience? And it's entirely plausible that Solomon became addicted and began to act in such a way that was largely unintentional for him. Uh, One last thought here to summarize Solomon's flaw. As I mentioned, his flaw was lust. It, it, it was it, it was a lustful heart for more. And I, I saw one commenter uh, describe it as destination disease. Destination disease. And what he meant by this was that lust is a disease of, of always wanting to go somewhere else, right? It's, it's the grass is always greener on the other side mentality where, hey, if I could just get here, if I can just go to this other plane or get one more thing or be with one more person, then I'll be happy. And then you get there and, you, and you're not happy with your destination. So you find another destination and another and another, thus destination disease. And he said the, the best way to combat this is contentment in God, to, to take what God has given you and find contentment in it, to say, you know what? The grass might seem greener on the other side, but I am happy where I am, and I am more importantly satisfied with where I am. And that being said, I want to real quick look at four ways to combat not just sexual temptation and sexual sin, but lust in general, right? Four ways to combat lust, the desires of our heart, or rather, excuse me, the desires of our flesh, and and these things that are, are of no place in our lives. First of all, we need to be alert. We need to be aware of these temptations. You know, be aware of boredom creeping in. Be aware of, of, of opportunities to compromise. We need to be aware of, of these things that could lead us down the wrong path. 1 Corinthians 10.12 So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall right? He's saying like, look, you might think you're okay, but you have to be careful. You have to be on guard. Uh, The Greek word used here is blepo, B-L-E-P-O. And I'm just going to read the definition straight from from online. It says, blepo suggests to see something physical with spiritual results. That is, it carries what is seen into the non-physical realm so a person can take the needed action. So what, what Paul is saying here is be physically aware of what's going on so that you could have a spiritual reaction, right? That's what it means to be alert in a biblical sense. We're alert to what shows we're watching, what music we're listening to, who we're hanging out with, and we're alert to these things so that spiritually we can respond in whatever way is necessary and turn that spiritual response into a physical one if need be. Secondly, we need to be severe. What do I mean by this? Ephesians 5.3, 
but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. The, the Greek word used for hint is onomazo, which means to name, call upon the name of, right? So, so what Paul is saying is don't even know the name of sexual immorality. Like, the name should not even be in your mind. That's how severe our reaction is supposed to be. I mean, even take the words of Jesus. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And though he didn't mean that literally, what he meant was be severe in your response to sin, right? If there's a particular TV show that has some images in it that are going to cause you to sin, it might not be enough to just say, I'm just going to avoid that channel, right? Maybe you need to cut your cable or cut that whatever provider is out, right? I know people in our church who have, for a period of time, lived without internet in order to avoid accessing certain sites, right? We need to be severe in our action, right? We need to be alert. And once you recognize something because you're alert, we need to be severe in our response. I mean, I know speaking for experience, there's been friends that I have had to cut ties with because they were just not good for me. And they were putting things in my life that were not good and should not be there. And I had to be severe and I had to say, look, I love you as a person, but I can't be friends with you because you are a negative influence. We need to be severe. Thirdly, we need to be gone. What do I mean by this? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18 But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of... I already read that scripture. Um, never mind, that's a, a quote. Anyways, 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It says, flee, flee the evil desires. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. We see this idea of flee from these things. Don't, don't even allow them to be present. Be gone. And again, this goes back to the idea of being severe, cutting these things out. Don't even be in that area. I remember uh, our pastor sharing a story when he was trying to diet, and he would, you know, he would have to change the route that he went home from work so that he wouldn't pass a donut shop, <laughs> right? He had to be gone from that thing, and and you know, whatever it might be that you're trying to avoid, don't let it linger in that area. Don't allow yourself to be near it. Be gone. Be, let it be gone from you and you gone from it, whatever way that might be. And lastly, number four, fight fire with fire. Acts 15, 8 through 9. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 through 8. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but the very God who gives you this Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the fire. And sometimes we need to fight the fire with the fire, <laughs> right? We need to fight the temptation and the lust with the Holy Spirit. There's uh, one, one quote I read. The guy said, 
the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. You see, our relationship with God gives us a power of expulsion to expel all of these negative things and these sins and these temptations, right? We need to take this fire that is trying to burn us and fight it with our own fire, our own Holy Spirit, and and, and beat these things back and say, you have no power here because there's a greater power in me. Amen? And, and, and so, fight fire with fire. So I'm going to summarize these. One, be alert. Two, be severe. Three, be gone. And four, fight fire with fire. And, and these are just a brief summary of things, but we do these four things and we can start to combat lust. Combat, really any sin for that matter, can be combated with these four things. And I believe that if Solomon, despite his wisdom still couldn't accomplish these four things. And I say that not as a discouragement because you think, oh, if the wisest man couldn't even do these things, how can I do them? Because at the end of the day, wisdom is important. But what matters more than wisdom is our relationship with God. And our, do we have the Holy Spirit within us? One thing that we have today that Solomon doesn't have or didn't have is the Holy Spirit. And I believe with that power, we can achieve what even Solomon, the wisest man ever, could not achieve. And that's where I'll leave us is, do you have the Holy Spirit and are you willing to utilize that fire to accomplish what Solomon couldn't? Can we take what Solomon did, apply it to our lives, and take it a step further by being even better than he was? Take his wisdom, take his the good things he did, and take it a step further and say, I will be better. I will be even, dare I say, wiser than Solomon was. And I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you for joining me. You can send us an email, brokennesstofaith at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. Follow us on Instagram, brokenness underscore two underscore faith. If you, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. We're open to any suggestions, comments, questions, anything at all. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you guys in the next one.